This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Podcast. On today's show, a new U.S. Congress. Will it trim Donald Trump's powers? Also, gender gap within CEOs and the right to die debate gets more complicated. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Right now, the new members of the U.S. Congress being sworn in. How will politics play out in Donald Trump's second half of his tenure? Uh, Now losing control of the House. Uh, Some are worried it's just going to, well, it's going to return to the swamp if it hasn't been there already. Not sure how much it has been drained or how this will change things. Let's bring in Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor of Political Science, Carleton University, and is with us now. Elliot, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Well, good afternoon, Scott. Happy New Year to you uh, as well, Elliot. You know, Donald Trump campaign on draining the swamp after years of stagnation and filibustering and green eggs and ham being red and all this sort of stuff. Uh, how is the U.S. going to view the second half of this man's term? Uh, are we still not in the swamp? Well, <laughs> we are speaking on a day when there's a shift in power in America. The Republican ascendancy, where they controlled both houses of Congress, plus the presidency, and you might argue also the Supreme Court, there's now a partial check on that with the Democrats taking power in the House with full, uh, full oversight capacity. The incoming speaker, Nancy Pelosi, reminds everyone that Article 1 of the U.S. Constitution is Congress has oversight of the agencies. So you ask about the swamp. I think a lot of what's going on now is going to be primarily geared in two directions, We're talking about this being the first of 2019, but actually we could argue this is all about 2020. This is about positioning the parties against each other for who's going to run run and win in 2020. This is about the presidential election as much as it is about starting over again. On the other strand, which is it's time for the present situation to be examined. These are closely related, of course. But in terms of the swamp, uh, you and I have used this term in the past that it's very tempting to get caught up watching the circus, but then you ignore the sausage factory. That is, everything around Donald Trump <laughs> automatically sucks up all the oxygen in the room and all the newsprint. But meanwhile, America is being fundamentally altered by the actions of the various departments of government, and those have gone virtually without oversight by the Republicans or by the media who are all caught up with watching the day-to-day machinations and, and, and activities of the Trump administration. So uh, they are now going to, in the House, start to begin looking at those agencies. And when they do, that's when this issue of the swamp comes back, because an agency after agency, it's anticipated, and we have tidbits of this along the way, including a new book, by the way, Scott, by the guy who wrote Moneyball, and uh, the big short, uh, Michael Lewis, he's written a book called The Fifth Element, 
where he started to look at the agencies of government. But mainly, though, this is going to start to show whether there has been, let's say, undue influence by, by lobbyists of various types. So uh, will we look back now at the first half of his presidency and analyze that and, and, and what he has accomplished and where he has fallen? I think uh, there's also very much a forward-looking component. The Democrats have to demonstrate that they, unlike the Republicans, are there to govern, and they're there to govern on behalf of the broad uh, cross-section of the American population that should then vote them into power in 2020. So they're there to show that they can get something done, or they're going to put it on the Republicans as being the ones who are the do-nothing Congress that will block anything. So very, the very first bill, H.R. Uh, 1, which is <laughs> coming out, is going to be a resolution passed by the Democratic majority with 63 new members, by the way. That's going to be an interesting dynamic to watch. But uh, to basically clean up uh, how America votes, they're going to try to remove money from politics, they're trying to try to preserve the integrity of the electoral system from money, from dark money, and they're also going to try to separately restore a lot of the... Um, elements of the Voting Rights Act, which have been struck down by the Supreme Court. So they're going to try to say, look, essentially they're going to say this, although they won't put it this bluntly, Republicans can only win when they cheat. And we're going to stop the cheating so that people in America who are citizens are not disenfranchised, prevented from voting, and that's their very first item of business. What about the government shutdown? Because again, it, this to me seems like a turning point in this presidency. Yes. The Democrats want, as I've suggested, <laughs> the item we just discussed to be their first item of business, but actually the first item of business has to be... Getting the uh, government back. Yeah. I mean, you know, the government of the United States, about a quarter of it is actually closed. And you've got Congress, both houses, and a president who are not running the government. And, you know, this is a huge failure. So now I think uh, a couple things are going on. One is the blame game. Uh, yes, this is the, the Trump shutdown. No, it's the Democrats are doing it. But the... Um, this is also about 2020. Each side now has made the wall a symbolic, a symbolic mm. political issue. Uh, we get a wall, says the Republicans, says Trump, uh, or America's sovereignty and its safety is being compromised. And the Democrats, and I must say, I think they've not played this very well, are basically saying no wall, no wall, no wall. Um, you're not going to get taxpayers' money for this frivolous exercise that's really not going to solve the problem. As a selling point, I think no wall, no wall may be good for their base, but it's not good for expanding uh, the perception of the Democrats, whereas the Republicans, the Trump in particular, has it going for him, saying, no, I'm the one who's trying to keep America safe. So right now this is all symbolism. It has very little to do with American security. And it most definitely has nothing to do with good government in Washington. How do, how do the Democrats stop from getting caught up in this circus, as you described? It's very difficult. Uh, Donald Trump has been... Because how can, you, how can you compromise with someone who's perceived as a bully? Well, Without a, bully, being weak. a bully and then some. Uh, and, and looking much farther ahead, he's a somebody. And in 2020, the Democrats have to come up with a somebody, because the first rule of politics is you can't beat somebody with nobody. But that's, that's a discussion for how the Democrats ultimately get a candidate who can defeat this guy, which is what your question, how do you deal with a bully? He's more than a bully. 
He's been very underestimated as a politician since he entered entered the hmm. political arena. You know, oh, he'll never get, he's not serious about getting the nomination. Oh, look, he might get the nomination, but there's no way he'll ever become president. He obliterated the Republican field, including the Bush dynasty. Mm. He then went on and he defeated the Clinton dynasty. So he's not to be underestimated as an effective uh, mobilizer of the kinds of opinion that could get him reelected in 2020. Now he's digging in his heels and saying, if I don't get what I want, uh, I'm going to keep the government shut down. If I don't get the wall, how does he play this so it, it, he doesn't blow off another toe? Well, this is their, this is the delicate ban- dance on both sides now. How can they look like they're going to go ahead saying, we're the ones who want to keep government open, and it's the other side that wants to keep it shut, so blame them. The Republicans are now being faced with a Democrat under Pelosi, a Democratic Congress, who said, we are going to pass a bill in the House, which the Republicans have already passed in the Senate, in fact, unanimously passed in the Senate. So, as she said, we're giving Trump a Republican path to ending the shutdown, and how can he turn that down? So I think this is, and I think he will. So what we're trying, I think what we're seeing with this new uh, era as of today with the Democrats in control of Congress, is they're going to repeatedly maneuver the Republicans in the Senate, where they have a majority, and the Republican Democrat, uh, uh, President Trump. They're going to continue to maneuver him into positions where they'll be forced to turn down things that are workable for America. Um, is the wall important enough to Americans... No. To warrant this? Is, no, like, is, he, is he playing this too heavy-handed? I mean, you know, I, I get my wall and that's it. I'm shutting the place down. We're all going home. Are Americans going to put up with that? No, the polling shows that America, generally public opinion, it doesn't care this much about a wall, but the base does. Remember, everything, you and I have talked about this, everything that comes out of the Trump White House should be read under the label of feed the base. So criticizing Republicans in Congress for not standing up, uh, re- re- saying, oh, look, Fox News is actually governing how a- the president behaves. I think all of that is somewhat misdirected because the Republican base, and this has, uh, I've just looked at the stats, the Republican support for Donald Trump from the beginning of 2018 till the end of 2018, that is, the election, the, the porn payoffs, the shutdown of government, Republican support went up, and so did support among independents. It went up. From, one, from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. So feed the base is really what's going on. Fox News is a direct conduit to that base, the, the, you know, all the talk radio. So I think the, the, uh, the wall then becomes a way for Donald Trump to speak to his base, and his base is not just a, a tiny fraction of the country. Eighty-nine percent of the Republican Party supports Donald Trump at the end of 2018. Uh, wall versus border security. Where is the compromise without looking weak? One's calling it a wall. One calls it border security. Where's the middle? Where, how do, how do, where's the compromise here? Since this is primarily symbolism, and it's important to each party for its base, for its appeal, it's going to be very difficult to get out of this because Donald Trump has set an absolute figure of $5 billion. The Vice President of the United States came back with a figure. He negotiated, Pence negotiated a $2.5 billion uh, increase as long as part of a bigger package. That got turned down. Um, 
possibly, just possibly, uh, one way out will be to re- go back to an old idea of linking a pathway to citizenship for dreamers, or at least looking after those people who were brought to America as children, and everybody wants to do something good about them, including Donald Trump, he said at one point. So possibly that older formula can be brought back. There's been bipartisan efforts. Maybe it can be wrapped up in broader immigration reform. But right now, there's no visible way out of this impasse. Uh, Donald Trump has backed himself into the co- into this corner. We remember the meeting uh, with Pelosi and Schumer, and and him saying, I- "I'm taking, I'll shut it down. I'll I'll take uh, the credit for this or the blame or whatever way you want to put it." Uh, how how does he back out of this? Um, because they're convinced he he's not going to get anything and call it a wall. Yes, uh, the, um, the, the I've sometimes said with you in the past that this is to a large degree, a Pence-Mitch McConnell administration, and we need to throw a spotlight on that. We need some investigation. We need some news about it. Uh, Mitch McConnell, the leader of the Republicans in the Senate, has said he's not going to bring any bill again to the floor of the Senate until he has an advance commitment from the president. He'll actually sign it because uh, Mitch McConnell did negotiate with Democrats, with Pence, to come up with something they thought that Trump would sign and then he didn't. So That was after the Fox News people started ranting correct. about it. correct. Yeah. And then people said, look, Fox yeah. News is running the government, and that's where my comment is, it's misunderstood, uh, I think. It's very visible and very obvious, but we sometimes lose it in the haze, that the reason Fox News has that impact is because Fox News is the direct conduit to that base. So it isn't just, oh, he watches a lot of cable TV and they push him around. He watches a lot of cable TV that reaches half of America, <laughs> so, as, as uh, Claude Hummer once pointed out. So uh, I don't have, if, if I could tell you how this impasse is going to end and I had a solution for it, I should be down there and not them. <laughs> but, <laughs> I think we're both more qualified, but that's besides the point. <laughs> well, heck, you and I would settle this over a sandwich and coffee. But, <laughs> but uh, uh, American politics right now is caught up with the symbolism relating to the 2020 election and each side is worried about mobilizing its base, and that's the politics of it, and that includes the wall, and then whatever comes next. So will this president be a lame duck president in the second half, or will this just be more intense, more divisive, more battles, more separation? And, well, I'm not and, really and, in the and, prediction and, business. And, uh, and how Americans, how are they going to feel about that? But... Uh, the only prediction I'll make for sure is we're going to have more chaos yeah. and more dysfunction. The, there's a lot of comment right now that this change in government uh, in terms of the House might mean actually a better path immediately in the future after the ball is settled, however they settle it, because Trump will try to work with the Democrats, and the Democrats will try to, this is important, try to work with the Republicans and with Trump on issues where they can reach agreement so that each side can say, look, we're getting something done. And that includes um, infrastructure, both the Democrats and the Republicans. And Trump has said, we want to do something on infrastructure. The Republicans had a bill that couldn't fly. (laughs) So now there's Democrats who say, look, we'll work with you on that. We'll work with you on on some immigration issues, if you're willing. We'll work with you on improving the health care. A lot of the Democrats are there in the House now because of the bread and butter issues around health care and you know, jobs. And if they, if Trump can say, look, I'll, I'll bypass everybody uh, by working with the Democrats on that, and then 
I will be in the strongest position possible to run for re-election. That's a, one scenario that, that you can sketch out. Will his ego let that happen? I mean, uh, Donald Trump has blamed the Democrats since he came in office, even though he is the one in power and he was the one that controlled everything up until now. So uh, is the, the second half, he'll just blame them for everything. Yes. And, and, even though he's the president. And he doubles down on it as well. So, yeah. yeah, and nothing's ever his fault. Only credit, never blame. Uh, there's, this is not a, a president given to self-reflection or doubt. This, however, is seen as a strength by his base, and that base is much larger than just a small portion of the Republican Party. He'll get things done by bulldozing things through. He was sent there to shake things up. Let's get the troops home out of Syria. Let's get them out of Afghanistan. Let's deal with the, with the Democrats. The Republican elites are out of touch, and he's going to bypass them. It's time we have a man of action. So how this all plays out, remember, we also have 17 investigations of the president before the Democrats take control of the House. There's also the Mueller investigation, which is ongoing. So we could be caught up in endless litigation around the president of the United States between now and 2020. My own feeling is that whatever happens in the next, we're starting now at the beginning of this year, like you and I are inaugurating the new year, By the end of this year, it's unlikely all of this will come to a head, but it could well come to a head between the beginning of next year and the election next year. Uh, A a completely different composition of Congress this time out. A record number of women, 102, uh, set to be sworn in this afternoon. Is this going to change anything, just just the different makeup of this Congress? Or sorry, Representative? It certainly strengthens the Democrats' position of saying, we look like America, and the Republican Party doesn't, yeah. because America is a very diverse place. And we, by the way, stand for inclusion and toleration. We stand for the best side of, of America's angels, not the worst side, not fear of the other. Uh, we are the other in some sense. So uh, they're going to be playing basically the high road. But we have a situation now where within, and we're talking about 2020 as being much of what's in, in play right now, Watch this Congress to see how it works out within the party itself. The Democratic Party now has to decide whether they're going to go for purity or for power. If they go for purity, there's going to be a lot of these newcomers who say, we can't get along with the old uh, agenda, we don't like the old leaders Hmm. of our own party, we're going to purge this party, we're going to make it pure, and, and it's going to be progressive. Or they can say, wow, look around us, we have an electoral machine here. We, take, we can take the cities, but we can take the suburbs. We can take purple states or purple areas within states in what used to be solidly red straight states. Why don't we work together and see this as a single electoral machine if we want power? So this is a decision now for the Democrats who have entered the Congress to, uh, to make for themselves. And also we have, because um, there's no leader of the Democratic Party, we have at least 20 people who think they could be the nominee for president of their party. Will this, and there's probably more, will this kind of fratricide <laughs> end up dividing the Republic of the Democrats so severely, and then the battle within the party hmm. for who's who so severe that no matter what happens to Trump, he'll have something like a pretty clear field for re-election. Elliot Tepper has been with us, Emeritus Professor of Political Science, Carleton University. Always fascinating. Elliot, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Oh, you're very welcome, Scott. And once again, uh, Happy New Year Year to you and, and the listeners. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. 
Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Some experts are predicting that Canadians will be facing a wild ride at the pumps this year. I would guess meaning uh, fluctuation in prices. Of course, uh, Andrew Scheer, leader of the Conservative Party, the Federal Conservative Party, uh, started the new year, say, uh, making carbon tax an issue for the next election. Will that be the case? Let's bring in Dan McTagg, former Liberal MP and Consumer Affairs critic, analyst, GasBuddy.com. He is with us now. Dan, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Uh, it's good to be here, Scott, and Happy New Year. And Happy New Year to you. I know you've been a busy guy over the last little while. Lots of stuff happening. Uh, what's on your radar as we head into 2019? And I want to preface that by saying um, Andrew Scheer obviously making a lot of hay over the carbon tax as we turned into the new year. How big an election issue will this be? Well, I think it's going to be massive. And it comes at a time when, of course, in April, not only do we get a five cent uh, uh, hike at the pumps because of the carbon tax, we're also looking at the same, pretty much the same week uh, with the shift from winter to summer gasoline, which is another five cents a litre. Oil is not going to remain at $44 a barrel uh, with uh, both Alberta, uh, OPEC, 21 nations cutting back on oil by 1.2 million barrels a day, potentially even more than that, with the U.S. finally uh, getting serious about its uh, uh, blockading of Iranian oil as part of its sanctions, which it gave waivers for. Uh, All of these are going to likely factor towards much higher prices come April, with oil starting to trickle upwards uh, after the uh, doldrums that we often see between January and February. Uh, Lots of chatter of how prices will fluctuate over the next year. We've been blessed with lower prices up until now. What can we see in the next year? Extreme volatility. It's going to follow the market. Uh, I don't see anything calming down for the next six months. Uh, A lot of other external factors. uh, Think here, of course, of the trade uh, you know, negotiations between the U.S. and China, uh, keeping the president uh, in check in terms of uh, tweets by the day, which tend to send markets uh, in varying directions. Uh, there's a lot of moving parts in what makes up the price of oil, but there is obviously a lot of uh, nervous, uh, I would almost say in the month of December, panic investors who are not sure where uh, the economy is going to wind up in 2019. All of that does create uh, upward momentum towards uh, higher prices for oil, uh, which is often used as a hedge, especially uh, in discounting, of course, any impacts uh, such as meteorological or even geopolitical issues, which are you know too early to tell at this point. But the reality is there really isn't much to justify oil's deep discount right now, and that means that gasoline prices will take a hit, uh, not just because of what's happening external to Canada, but even internally to Canada. As we've talked many times, Scott, you and I, uh, about the uh, importance of getting pipelines built in Canada. It's one of the main reasons why the Canadian dollar remains so fundamentally depreciated. I look at the Canadian dollar trading for 135 pennies today. A year ago, it was 125 pennies. We've lost, just on gasoline and diesel alone, three cents a litre in purchasing power. So uh, there are a lot of considerations here, and I think uh, they're all leading up to extreme volatility, where you could see prices uh, not just on the markets, but at the pumps drop three or four cents a litre one week and rise by the same amount, if more, the following week. But one thing is clear. 
uh, once we hit uh, April uh, with summer demand, U.S. Uh, having a very strong economy, look for prices to hit and exceed uh, the values that we saw this time last year. Any idea what the price will be come uh, November by the time the election rolls around? Oh, well, November starts to see prices decline. October, November, December, uh, with uh, January and February being an absolute funk. But uh, November looks like uh, prices higher than we saw this year. In and around Hamilton, we were seeing in most of November, uh, I'm just looking at the books here because uh, I keep these things rather uh, religiously and usually at hand. You're looking at about a buck fifteen a liter uh, for gasoline. Look for us to be a little bit higher come November, if only because the federal government's uh, reimposition of the carbon tax. Uh, and that carbon tax, of course, is a significant five cents a liter for gasoline, six point one for diesel, and something I think everyone who's, uh, you know, has a who has an angle in this for or against uh, seems to forget that oil and the drop in oil prices has no bearing whatsoever on the cost of home heating, which is principally either propane or natural gas. There are so there is some element of uh, uh, furnace oil, uh, but the reality is that uh, those prices too have to be calculated as well as November. Uh, we'll have now a full six or seven months of uh, the artificially higher price for uh, input costs derived by fuel and carbon taxes on them. Look for that to start to hit things like our grocery checkout. Uh, Andrew Shear uh, making political hay in the new year, uh, bringing up the carbon tax, but yet not explaining what his party will do. What can the Conservatives do to change this? Uh, you know, I, 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 rather than the political side, I tend to take what I think some economists are starting to Come forward. Mark Jacquard, a very well-known uh, economist from UBC, or Simon Fraser, I've got to remember one or the other, uh, put out a report, or at least an op-ed, uh, last month in the Globe and Mail, um, in which he's saying, look, you don't need to uh, whack people over the head with a, uh, with a, with a carbon tax. Um, we, obviously, his concern, and I think it's one that's kind of the folly of the whole thing, is if you're going to impose a carbon tax and you're going to say it's revenue neutral because you're going to give people back a check, well, that's not going to reduce emissions. People are not going to stop driving uh, logically if what they're paying out will simply be rebated to them, assuming that system works. And I, I believe it won't, having been the only MP to ever get to energy rebates to Canadians. I think at the end of the day here, Mark, what we're looking at is uh, rather, uh, you know, for, for, all, for all this, Scott, is what Mark has said is that uh, just get regulation to work. And I think that's the way you have to go. I think that's the way the province is going. And it seems to me to be a lot more sensible. When it comes to uh, things like carbon tax, what have you, obviously uh, the, uh, some provinces on board, some provinces uh, not on board. Obviously this is going to be an issue for the Prime Minister as he heads into the next election. I know you've had various opinions on this, or, uh, various differing opinions on this. What is the answer here? What should we be doing? Well, I think, I think we should recognize that it may not be something that's going to make anyone happy. One, uh, people are going to have to pay more for very little in the way of results. It won't have any appreciable effect on the environment. Assuming one accepts that uh, uh, CO2, which is an inert gas, is, is bad for your health uh, or bad for, for the environment, setting that aside and the debate over it, I mean, the reality here is that those who are proponents of big, fat carbon taxes aren't happy because it's not enough. Those who are opposed will sim- rightly say that it's not going to have any appreciable effect on the environment or on our, our goals in terms of the treaty that uh, Justin Trudeau signed, uh, the Paris Climate Accord. And, of course, none of us want the kind of outcome that we're seeing with yellow vests throughout uh, parts of Western Europe. Um, at the end of the day, I think what we're really trying to do is to find, in a typical Canadian way, the reality of the middle ground. The middle ground is, yes, we can do these things. Let's work hard on regulation. Regulation, by the way, uh, on emission, on emitters, not on consumers. 
the fact is we've given exemptions to pretty much every major emitter in the country. So that really puts a, uh, a twist and, and puts to some, you know, some doubt the seriousness of the government in its, pro- in its uh, proceeding this way. But I think at the end of all of this, we also have to be mindful that uh, we've done untold damage to our ability to raise investments and revenues and, and investments, even when a province like Alberta has capped emissions, even when a province like Alberta has imposed a, a punishing $0.07 a litre carbon tax. Uh, you know, you have uh, environmentalists going around saying, not enough. Uh, and uh, we want to inflict more pain because at the end of the day, we want to shut your resources down, especially your uh, oil and, uh, and and natural gas and, of course, uh, anything to do with the energy uh, sector. But, by the way, it's okay to sell coal to the rest of the world. Hmm. Uh, we, we were going to give you guys a pass. We're not going to punish uh, the large amounts of volumes of coal that leave uh, Vancouver's ports every day. Uh, I'm playing devil's advocate here. So are you a climate change denier then? <laughs> Questions rhetorical. The answer is not. I don't think that uh, that has anything to do whatsoever uh, with whether or except the, the climate is changing. Yes, the climate does change. And yes, it's no longer a question of global warming. And yes, we are not seeing floods. We're not seeing the ice caps in the North Pole disappear. And there's plenty of polar bears out there. Look, we are heading into a colder period, which is going to be more important for policymakers to recognize over the next 10 or 15 years, uh, our climate is actually going to get a lot colder. And uh, for that reason, uh, volatility, changes in weather patterns are not something that can be controlled by attacks. They should be addressed with a more fundamental understanding, uh, not just of how these things occur, but what we can do to mitigate them. Uh, uh, Many of us have traveled, uh, driven down to the United States on the coast and many places where you shouldn't be putting homes you know, uh, you, they're, they're there. Uh, we know that the hurricanes are not a new phenomenon, even though this generation may think so. We also know that uh, earthquakes, uh, volcanoes are not caused by climate change. So rather than getting in that debate, I think you go to those who have, you know, a little bit more material on this stuff. Uh, the economists like Mark Jacquard, who said, look, if we're going to accept that this is the way to go, let's take a different approach, as opposed to beating ourselves over the idea that, you know, you deny or you don't deny and using these ad hominem attacks, which at the end of the day, uh, we could spend hours trying to debate. I think we have to understand that the widget that's being proposed by the federal liberal government is the wrong way to approach this. It makes nobody happy at the end of the day, and will have zero positive results for the environment, if that's in fact the goal. Well, again, the message seems to be we have to do this, and we have to do this now, or we're going to lose the planet. Yeah, you know what? Uh, I'm not into the alarm, uh, alarmism game, I, and I, I think those who have played that card have now, after 10 or 11 or 12 years, realized that it's not true. Uh, that, uh, you know, our, our own perception of things. But, but expert environmentalists are saying we got like 10 or 12 years to turn this around. Well, they said that 10 years ago, okay? I mean, yeah, I was yeah. Key at the time. I, sa- I sat in our Liberal caucus uh, and tried to have Stefan Dion explain to us why it was important to have the green shift then. There was as much pressure and as much need to move with it back then. Kids have since been taught this in the school. I mean, it's almost rote that they know what is going on. And yet the evidence is, is clearly not there. What is uh, something that we have to understand, our population's exposure to areas and to sensitivity through being able to get information on weather and on impacts, uh, and of course the cost. Uh, population grows, we go into areas that are subject to these kind of uh, vagaries, the news travels much faster than it did 10 or 20 or 30 years ago. I think we're just a lot more sensitive to what's going on, but I don't think we should go throw ourselves over a cliff and do things that are fundamentally uh, more damaging than what we're trying to achieve. And if we want to reduce the level of CO2 uh, and be part of that team, I think we have to look at the broader picture. Now, the government may have thought at the time it was the right thing to proceed. It's now made a number of conditions, including the fact, recognizing finally, 
you can't proceed too far ahead when you have your largest trading partner to the south not doing anything, your second largest trading partner in the east, that'd be China, India, doing absolutely nothing about it, while you yourself are doing un- untold damage to your economy uh, because the goals that you're trying to achieve are not pertinent to Canada. More importantly, they're undermining the economic well-being and possibly the constitutional stability of the country. How will we view this 10 years from now? How will Same we v- view this in uh, you know 2020s that we're on the cusp of 2020? How will we view this 2030? Yeah, I don't think it's going to change. I mean, look, I... I, I the plan is still going to die in another 10 years. I, I can predict gasoline better than most weathermen can, uh, and, and persons can uh, predict in two days. So, look, if, if we can't predict the weather for, uh, accurately a week from now, how the hell are we going to do it in 10 years? logical conclusions here that everyone has to be on board, but let's understand that we shouldn't be beating ourselves up for it. There's a lot of back and forth. We can have a debate for years about what is the right approach. I happen to believe that the approach taken by the federal Liberal government is the incorrect one. I think the one that is being proposed uh, by Mark, the Mark Jacquards of this world is the proper way to go. And I simply point out to people, look at the average emissions and fuel efficiency of vehicles sold in 2018-2019 compared to 10 years ago. You didn't need to have a carbon tax or whack people overhead with a mallet, with a financial mallet, to get to that point. I think we understand this, we are going to get there, but let's uh, let's not do ourselves in. And frankly, when I see a government that has a $19 billion deficit, not likely to be able to arrest the deficit demon for the next 20, 25 years, I'm more concerned about uh, Canadians losing, losing faith in their government and losing faith in their ability to unite behind a common cause. Where provinces like Alberta have stood up, you know, uh, four square, uh, have uh, reduced emissions, have, uh, you know, uh, imposed upon themselves a carbon tax, and they're seeing their entire economy further away because it's not enough or because we're seen as a bunch of bumpkins where, uh, you know, environmentalists can come in and spend tens of millions of dollars campaigning block every potential constitutional outcome, even the federal government tie it into pretzels and cause you and I $4.5 billion for a pipeline that isn't yet built. I think Canadians are starting to say that it's time to hit the pause button on this lunacy. Uh, I know you don't want to get political about this, but you, you talked about. <laughs> you <mean I> have <laughs> no, you talked about. Well, I'm trying to keep you there. You, and you talked yeah. about what the economist said. So, what, what, as we head into a next election, what should a next government? Top three things, four things they should say on this to the to Canadians, to the Canadian public. I think Canadians know that there has to be a way forward, um, and that they have to be a participant in that. And I think it has to be pretty clear what that policy is. Saying that you're going to put a, uh, you know, a price on pollution is as nebulous as me saying uh, gas prices will, be, will fluctuate in the next uh, year or two. Uh, I think we have to be precise as to what we're proposing because you have three out of four parties, the Green, the NDP, uh, and the, uh, the federal Liberals that want to do something in that regard as far as uh, imposing a tax on people. Now, however they decide to make it uh, turn out uh, is, is something that I think Canadians have to agree or disagree on. We have to have an election on this, and that's why I believe the cost of living is going to be right front and centre next October. Uh, and anybody who thinks it's about virtue signalling or calling people deniers or whatever, you know, uh, uh, ignorant comments that can be brought up in the, you know, in the, in the cut and thrust of, uh, of, of a political debate, I think are going to lose Canadians. We're all in this together. We recognize that there has been substantial damage to the economy so far. And that's proven by the fact that we have the western part of this uh, country, uh, which, is, uh, which is truly suffering. Uh, 
uh, and for which uh, has always been the engine of growth of our economy. Uh, it's also having enormous implications for us right here in the Golden Horseshoe, right here in Hamilton, in terms of the production of steel, in terms of economic activity, the four $5 billion that's uh, in economic work that's done here in uh, Ontario and Quebec. Uh, you know, uh, when one region of the country, which is as important as Alberta in terms of financing our social programs, is on its knees, it doesn't bode well for the future. I remember asking you months ago whether the pipeline would get built, and you were pretty pessimistic about it all. Is it yeah. too late to turn this around? You talked about losing Canadians. Have have we already lost Canadians? I mean, many millennials will you know look to the fires in the U.S. and say you know in California and say it's all it's all a part of climate change. We got to do something. We got to do it now. And they seem wow. to have bought into what the prime minister is selling. Look, we've had fires in those locations, but there just wasn't a million people living there. Um, it's a dangerous place to sometimes, uh, there's a good reason why many of those homes were not insured. Uh, insurance companies, well in advance, knowing there's a financial implication, said no. Look, we are going to have rough weather, and we are going to have calm days. But we can't simply turn around and say, oh, the rough weather that we're having, which has been going on as long as mankind has been on this planet, is because of climate change. Climate changes, and I don't want to be trite about it, but the reality is that I think we can't. We, we must be careful not to get carried away. Uh, and the objectives that we have, I think, are good ones. They're sound ones. Okay, let's reduce the amount of CO2, assuming, of course, that it is related to uh, this kind of uh, these, these kind of variations in our temperatures. But let's do it in a way that's constructive, that in which everybody is brought on board to a common goal. Uh, you know, by saying that doesn't make me a denier. It doesn't make me somebody who is rowing against the current. The reality, however, is that there is already a very strong proven way in which to proceed with this. Otherwise, you wind up with yellow vests in France. And I don't mm. think any of us want to go down that road. Worse for us in Canada, I don't want to see the Federation disintegrate because, uh, you know, you have a circumstance where one region of the country is, uh, is in serious trouble because of this tom- tomfoolery. Another region of the country which says no pipelines, but I'll take your $13 billion in equalization payments. This is corrosive to the country, and it requires strong leadership to avoid and to amend and to repair and to find that common consensus that is all about what we've done in this country. This is a nation that isn't just diverse in its region, it's diverse in its thought. I keep trying to explain this to my new liberals who think that it's all about virtue signaling and about the five you know, big issues that they campaigned in 2015 on. We are in a different place today, and we have a very strong indication that the next few years are going to be very, very tough for Canada. Uh, we have to make uh, decisions, I think, that put Canadians first, put our, uh, be, you know, continue our down the road of environmental stewardship. Because make no mistake, when we produce oil, we clean it better than most nations do around the world. We have an excellent labor uh, rights uh, standard and a human rights standard. Let's not dump on ourselves and let's start working on on what we know we do best at but at the same time let's not lose people doing it because i think the imposition of this carbon tax is going to do just that especially as it accelerates uh by three and four cents every year up to 12 cents by 2022 i have no doubt in my mind that the three parties uh the ndp the green and the liberals will get together and they will double that so you know uh if we can afford to do that great my sense is that we can't especially in an environment like here in ontario where our debt is massive where the public feels very financially pressured, and where there are no economic uh, positive benefits uh, to this massive green shift at tremendous cost. It is going to be fascinating to see how the next nine months play out. Dan McTagg has been with us, former Liberal MP and Consumer Affairs critic, AnalystGasBuddy.com. Dan, as always, we thank you for the time and passion. Much appreciated. Good to be here. Thanks for having me, Scott. We'll see you soon. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML.
three reports given to the federal government uh, just before the new year in regards to the right to die debate, uh, looking at the possibility of extending medical assistance in dying to mature minors, people with psychiatric conditions, and those requests, uh, those making requests uh, in advance. You might remember the story uh, that happened recently where uh, a a person had to request uh, assisted dying earlier than what she originally wanted to because when you, you, you... Although you initially start the program, uh, the process and 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 give consent, you also have to give consent before the actual uh, event happens. However, many are in incapacitated for various reasons by that time, forcing at least one that we know of to do this earlier. Uh, than what she wanted. Lots of debate as we continue into the new year. Uh, This issue uh, certainly still needs some uh, I's to be dotted and some T's to be crossed. Let's bring in Shanaz Gokul, CEO of Dying with Dignity Canada, and is on the air with us now. Shanaz, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. Glad to be here. So as we head into the new year, talk to us about what has been presented to government and and what decisions they're going to have to make moving forward on this. Right. So the government was required um, in 2016 when they passed the legislation of, of um, for assisted dying to study the implications uh, for assisted dying for mature minors, so young people who already have the right to make other life-ending decisions, um, for people whose sole underlying medical condition is psychiatric in nature, uh, for people who want to make an advanced request. Um, if they have a diagnosis like dementia. And I'm going to say that Audrey Parker, was in, the woman that you were talking about, was in a fourth category mm. of people who were excluded, people who've already been assessed and approved for medical assistance in dying, but um, have uh, a lot of vulnerability uh, and are at high risk of losing capacity and losing the right altogether. And so the reports came in uh, in December, and they are extensive. Uh, they're on our website if anyone wants to go take a look at dyingwithdignity.ca. Uh, the work has been excellent. And now the question really is, okay, so what now? You know, this was for the Canadian Council of Academies who did this work. This was the largest study that they've ever done. So we know hundreds of thousands of dollars was spent on this really critical work. Uh, and now we're really asking the government to move forward with next steps. Um, because until we have inclusive rules for assisted dying, many people in these four categories are going to continue to suffer um, and not be able to find any option. And, uh, you know, we believe, quite frankly, uh, will continue to have their rights violated. What was the impact of the passing of Audrey Parker? Because this was certainly a scenario, I, I think, that struck a chord with a lot of Canadians, especially her making this decision, doing everything that she needed to do, and then having to do it earlier, uh, having to do it early, simply because she was worried she would not be able to give the final consent. Yeah, so her story, you know, is uh, and, and what she did for the movement and and understanding people who are in her situation um, was actually quite profound. Uh, We already, we knew there were going to be people who were going to be, you know, assessed and approved, who'd already, you know, had seen at least two independent clinicians and were at risk of losing uh, capacity. Um, But we included them in the broader group of advanced requests, uh, you know, for people who have dementia. And what Audrey made me realize in the first conversation I had with her about 
a month before she died because she kept referring to, you know, her her situation as her category and people in her category. And I was like, what what category is she talking about? And then it just hit me, and I'm like, oh, well, your category is assessed and approved for medical assistance and dying. She's like, well, that's exactly right. And I said, and you should be allowed to go ahead even if you lose capacity. Well, yes, that's exactly right. Uh, so Audrey had uh, terminal breast cancer that had spread into her bones and also into her brain. So we knew with certainty she was dying um, and that if she didn't have an assisted death, she would lose capacity uh, before before she died. And so she really helped us to understand that this is a fourth category of exclusion and that it's actually of all the four. And even when you read the government's reports, the CCA reports, it's the one that's the most straightforward for the government to proceed with. You know, Audrey wasn't going to change her mind about having an assisted death if she lost capacity. She was just going to be comatose. Uh, and unable to articulate herself or her thoughts or feelings, but she wasn't going to change her mind. Um, and, you know, when we look at people in her category, I, you know, and I think that, uh, you know, what we have to understand here is how can we possibly tell Audrey Parker, as the Justice Minister did the day after Audrey died, at that time saying that they had no plans for changing the legislation, it's how we protect the most vulnerable. But I ask, you know, your your listeners and yourself, that really what, 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 you know, what she said was, well, you know, it's okay for Audrey to, uh, Parker to have medical assistance in dying too early. We know she wanted to live for one more Christmas, but this is how we protect the most vulnerable. Hmm. Audrey was one of the most vulnerable, and telling her to die too early cannot be yeah. um, how we move forward, right? Hmm. I mean, assisted dying is supposed to be life-affirming. It's supposed to be a you solution. Live... <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, absolutely. Yeah. When you live as long as you can, the best quality of life as you can, until you can't, this woman, she just wanted one more Christmas. Yeah. Right. And yeah. so I think that when you look at the four categories, understanding that there are vulnerabilities and, and uh, complexities with, with each of them, this one, and this is, you know, going back to your question about what was her impact, this one is clear cut and straightforward. And if the government does not move to legislate immediately, there will be someone who will go to court. It's just a matter of time because I cannot imagine, you know, a, a judge in this country telling that person who will likely have cancer that, you know, oh, this is how we're going to protect you. Yeah, you should die too early. No one's going to say that. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. it's ludicrous, yeah, right? It's yeah. so ridiculous. And so this is the easiest thing, and we have pleaded with the government to move forward on this because we know from Health Canada's own reporting that there are significant numbers of people who every month either are having an assisted death too early because of the risk of losing capacity or who are dying before they've um, been able to have an assisted death uh, and, and you know have lost capacity. And so it's the number one reason why people aren't able to move forward once they've made a request for uh, for medical assistance in dying, it's because they've lost capacity. This is not rocket science to fix this one exclusion. And then when we look at the other three areas, you know, we really have to look at coming up with uh, inclusive guidelines and, and protocols that will be very different from the existing legislation as it stands. In Audrey's particular case, she meets all the criteria as it stands. We think that the criteria is too restrictive, but she meets all of them, and she should just be allowed to go ahead. So it's it's not difficult to sort through what needs to be done for people like Audrey. So in Audrey's case, or those similar to them, uh, would go through the process, would give consent, then who would do that? Who would determine when after she loses capacity? 
No, I think it could be done in, in um, one of two ways. Um, I think it still has to be Audrey making that determination so that, you know, the made request is a written, um, you know, request form. But then, you know, there could be another written declaration where someone like Audrey would say, um, I, you know, I've been assessed, I've been approved for assisted dying, I'm at high risk of losing capacity, I would still like to die on January 2nd because she wanted one more Christmas, should I, you know, lose uh, capacity, um, or um, I would like to have an assisted death as soon as I lose, lose capacity. And I think, so she's already stating what she's wanted, her doctors, uh, you know, her medical team, they've already approved her, we know that she's going to have an assisted death, um, and then once she loses capacity, they go ahead, whether it's on the date that she chose or after she lost capacity. Mm. I don't think, you know, it's, it's, and we would use that form, this declaration, as a written confirmation of consent, of advanced consent, right? That this is, yeah, this is my confirmation that I want this thing to go ahead because people like Audrey and most of the people in Audrey's situation are going to have cancer. They're not going to change their minds, right? They're just not going to be able to articulate what their mind wants. Um, and so that should be able to stand. And her medical team, she's already been assessed and approved. They'll know when she loses capacity, if she loses capacity before the day that she wants, then she could go ahead. So I think that, you know, this, it's really important that the person in the driver's seat of moving these things along in all four exclusionary areas are the person the person themselves, right? Um, and some of this will be done uh, through written notification. The same thing with advanced requests for dementia. You know, it's Mary Smith deciding for Mary what she wants. She's got a diagnosis for dementia. These are the conditions that are going to cause her intolerable suffering. She documents them. Yes, she will need help to determine once yet she's met all these five conditions, you know, she's uh, lost capacity, she doesn't recognize anybody, she's bedridden, she can't feed herself, uh, she can't clothe herself, she can't toilet herself, all met. Now, now's the time for Mary to have an assisted death. It's Mary determining for her future self. Uh, and I think that is so critical here that it's the person themselves making decisions for themselves. Mm. Shanaz Gokul has been with us, CEO of Dying with Dignity Canada, and reports uh, waiting government, uh, well, waiting to see what the reaction is going to be and any information moving forward on this. Shanaz, thank you so much for the time and insight as always. Much appreciated. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.